stand for the decoration today. We're going to read it together. Lord, by faith, we declare that we are walking in the manifestation season. As your faithful remnant, we will house your very presence. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and he has delivered us from all of our troubles and fears. We are no longer victims, but we are victors in Christ. We will not be deceived by the lies of the enemy, but we will give health, healing, and wholeness to the hopeless and those in despair. We will live under your anointing and see the revealed purpose of Christ in each of our lives. We declare your everlasting word on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray over the sermon today. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you right now. Lord, we thank you for your abundance and mercy and grace that you bestowed upon all of us, God. We thank you for this assembly here today, Lord, to lift up your name. I pray right now that you would be with our pastor as he gives forth the word today. I pray that you would block all hindrances against his body or his mind, Lord. I pray that you would be with him, and I pray that our eyes and our ears would be open to what you're going to say to us today, and that we would, we would use it for the betterment of your kingdom, God. We thank you in all these things, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Give the Lord a praise. Hallelujah. Yes. Amen. Glory to God. It's so good to see this wonderful congregation out this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 7. And while you're turning there, some of the most precious people in our church and some of the most valuable people is our seniors. How many believes that? How many believe that? Come on. Amen. And they're going to meet this uh, Tuesday at uh, 1 o'clock at Pizza Inn for their um, 55 and over lunch. If you're 55, I'm sure if you're 54 and a half, they'll let you come. Amen. But we just wanted to announce that that got skipped in our announcements. And while you're turning to the word of the Lord, I just wanted to make sure that our seniors, that you're aware of that luncheon the Tuesday at Pizza Inn at 1 o'clock. Eat all you can. Amen. If Zechariah chapter 4, starting with verse 7. Uh, we're going to read the word of the Lord. You can remain seated this morning. Who are thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, Grace, grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Now there's a lot of preaching in these verses of scripture, but we're going to get into the area that I feel like that the Lord has laid upon my heart. We have preached through the whole book of Zechariah several years ago. Some of the material that I'm going to use is just a kind of a reminder, but we're going to go a different direction even in the area that I went several years ago as we've done a whole study, an in-depth series on the book of Zechariah. I want to ask again, we've done prayed once, but I want to ask again for you to give the Lord a great shout of praise before we enter into the word of the Lord today. Hallelujah. Amen. I believe God wants to be honored here today. 
As I began to reflect upon the word of the Lord this week, these verses of scriptures kept coming back to my mind, and I thought, now, Lord, I've done preached the whole of the book of Zechariah, and it was just like, I'm going to show you something new. In this journey of faith that we as Christians are on, how many know that we're on a journey of faith? Sometimes we forget about the priorities of our faith. There are things of faith that is a priority, and sometimes we forget about them. Faith is not tolerating. It's not just sitting around tolerating things all of the time, but it's moving, it's changing, it's advancing. That's what faith does. Faith does not stand in one place too long. It is patient, but it is not passive. It does not just settle and say this is the way things are going to be. Faith works. It does not settle, but it's aggressive. How many believe that? If you really have a true faith, you'll be an aggressive person in the faith in the kingdom of God. Faith moves mountains. It heals the sick. It casts out devils. It breaks yokes. And we like to focus on all of that stuff that it does within the supernatural, but it does something else that a lot of times that we really don't put a lot of trust trust and stock in. And that is that faith also pursues promise. How many believes that? How many believes that when God gives you a promise, faith pursues that promise? It goes after it with everything that is within it. If you believe that God will heal you, then you'll pursue your healing. If you believe that God's going to save your loved ones, you're going to pursue that they'll be in prayer. You're going to put action to your faith. Look at verse 7 of our text with me just for a moment. It says, Who are thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain and Shall, he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shouting, saying, Grace, grace, grace unto it. The great mountain referred to here is not a natural mountain, nor it is a spiritual mountain. Actually, it is a mountain of debris. In 535 B.C., we know that Cyrus allowed some of the Jews to return home to Palestine from Babylon. And they had made a feeble attempt, according to the word of the Lord, to actually begin the temple restoration process. They started it. But resources and the vast amount of rubble that had to be removed before the job could continue had intimidated and overwhelmed the people. They started and when they got to looking at everything that they had to do and what they had to do with it, they became overwhelmed and they stopped. For almost 15 years now, they had met at the time of the new moon at the feast days on that temple mount. There they sat without a building, without a structure, without a temple to worship in or to offer sacrifice. There they sat among the ruins of the temple. Day after day, week after week, they sat there for 15 solid years. No place to worship, no place to offer sacrifices. What was once a site of the beautiful Temple of Solomon was now a mountain of rubble and it was a mountain of debris. No building could take place until that rubble and that debris actually would be removed. Yet we see it stayed day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And each day that that rubble remained, it was a testimony of Babylon's triumph and a testimony of Israel's defeat. Everywhere they looked, it was ruin. Everywhere they looked, it was dreams that were crushed. Everywhere they looked, it was memories of the past. All around Jerusalem were mounds of rubbish, piles of ruin, and mountains of debris. The wreckage of the Babylonian siege still remained among those Jews that had returned back. The city was still ravaged after 15 years of them living in it and among it. And I got to thinking, why in the world would someone want to live among that mess? If I lived in a little area, I'd start cleaning up my area. But it just seemed like that they were so overwhelmed, that they were so, 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 uh, lost so much heart that they couldn't even see what was among them and how to overcome it. Though occupied by privileged Jews that returned, yet the condition of that city broke their heart and broke their spirit to where they couldn't do anything. But we hear this man by the name of Zechariah and he makes a declaration of the mountain of rubble. I love this. You know, it's time that 
let the church of the living God hear from God and start making some declarations of not what is but what shall be. Can I have an amen? And here comes Zechariah on the scene in the midst of these people after 15 years of setting up with this mess and he begins to prophesy. And this is oh, I'm about to get happy up here. And he begins to prophesy and old Zechariah says, oh mountain of rubble that stands before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Now listen to what he prophesies. Zechariah declares that the mountain of rubble is going to be removed and in its place is going to stand a flat foundational ground upon upon which they, those Jews that have returned back from Babylon, that they're going to construct a temple to the glory of God. Here comes Zechariah, people's lost heart. They have no spirit. They're broken down. They're overwhelmed. They've lived in a month for 15 years. And now we see that Zechariah comes on the scene and says, hey, whole mountain of debris, you're fixing to be gone. You're going to be leveled out. And these people that were sent here to do a job, they're going to do that job. And they're going to build a temple to the glory of God. Can you give praise for the promise of God in that? Amen. It is here that God speaks loud to each and every one of us here this morning. All of us. There's not any of us that isn't faced with rubble that represents some personal failure or some event or circumstance of our past that seems to cripple and hinder our progress. Every time that we try to put one foot forward, there's a reminder of where we slip back to. There is not one of us that is exempt from looking back and seeing ruin where we have failed miserably and the rubble stands and reminds us of that failure day in and day out. Have you ever tried to do something for the Lord and then all of a sudden everything where you failed God begins to come to your mind? What does it do? It condemns you, it mocks you, it ridicules you. And every time you get ready to advance and do something for the Lord, when we find suddenly the wreckage of our past failures mount up in big heaps declaring the defeat of our future. It already says you're going to lose before you ever get started. And suddenly the past rises up like a looming mountain staring us in the face. All of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the disappointment all the broken dreams, all of the all of the frustrations, and it glares at us, and it challenges us, it mocks and ridicules us, and it speaks to us, and it says, do you think you're really going to get rid of me of that easy? It says, do you think you can really so easily forget about me? You'll never forget about what I've done. It declares, I have been with you for years, and I'm not going to go anywhere. That's what all of your defeat says to you. It sneers, it shows you the remaining rubble of what, should, what used to be, it shows you all of that, what could have been. It laughs. It tries to remind you of what could have been if it were not for the rebellion that caused the Babylonian captivity in the first place. And though they were free from captivity, these Jews, yet they lived captive to their own mindset, which was caused by the piles and the heaps of rubble around them. Everywhere they went was testimonies and constant reminders of the Babylonian victory and their defeat. Everywhere they looked, they could not look anywhere without being reminded of it. And every time that you and I turn around. We have scars from the past. We have disappointments in the past and they remind us all the time of what could have been and what we lost and the lost opportunities of our lives. There were reminders everywhere these people went creating images in their minds and pictures and creating memories that were unpleasant. How many of you got some of those kinds of memories? Raise your hand. I've got four or five people that are on. Every single one of us could look back and weep over some of the things that was... we done that cause grieving circumstances in our lives. Can I have an amen? The consequences of their failure was widespread. And let me tell you, it left, it left lasting effects. 
And I know that there is consequences to sin. Some of us in this building right now are reaping what we call the consequences of our choices, the consequences of our actions, the consequences of our behavior, the consequences of our decisions. These Jews lived among the rubble and the ruins. The devil cares less, less that we have left Egypt, my friend, which means worldliness, as long as Egypt never leaves us. We get out of Egypt, but if Egypt's in us, he's still got us bound. These Jews lived in the midst of wreckage. They lived in the land of ruin. They made paths through their yesteryears, and they learned to cope and just exist with everything around them, reminding them of their past failures. They just said, this is the way it's going to be. They settled. They learned to live with their past. Let me tell you something. It's time to quit learning with you, learning to live in your past. Forget your past. Can I have an Amen. What once was the beautiful, magnificent structure of Solomon's temple was now nothing but a pile of wreckage, and they have come to accept it as it is. Well, this is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be. This is the way it's always been, so I guess this is the way i got to live the rest of my life. God just wanted me to come by here today and tell someone that it's time to take charge over your rubble. Quit crying over the past and start living in the present so that you can have a promising future. What happened yesterday can, is not the end result of what it can be for your future. We have to learn how to face our piles of rubble and the mountains that gives us the reasons not to fulfill the things that God has for us. And to declare to that mountain, you have kept me bound long enough. I am no longer going to be bound and enslaved to the mountains of my past. It's time to move the rubble out of our lives and keep it from destroying our promise. God's got great promises from all of us. It's his delight to give good things to his children. Quit living in the condemnation of the past and start reaching out in faith for this morning and declare that you're an overcomer in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Hallelujah. Quit crying about what could have been and start declaring what shall be. Amen. Oh, it could have been if I would have only, if I would have only. Well, you didn't, and you got circumstances, and you got consequences over it. Get over it. Quit crying about it. Brush yourself off. Learn by it. Put one foot forward and say, from this day forward, I declare that all of the promises of God that is in Christ Jesus is yea and amen. I receive them on the behalf of that promise. I am not going down. I am going up. I'm not a victim. I am a victor in Jesus Christ. Give the Lord praise. Stand to the Lord and give him praise. Come on, give him praise. Amen. We have to speak to those mouths and say, be ye leveled in the name of Jesus. Amen. I said, be ye leveled in the name of Jesus. We have to speak to the mountain and say, you're not going to keep me shackled in the past failures any longer. Amen? Isn't that what Jesus told us to do? Have faith in God. If any man will say unto this mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea and, not believe, and believe those things in which he said, he shall have those things which he saith. Can I have an amen? We have to speak to those mountains and say, you're not going to enslave me any longer. Yes, the truth of the matter is Babylon, Babylon has conquered me. Yes, the truth of the is I got past regrets. Yes, I did make mistakes, but now it's time for me to move on, clean up, build, and build. Can I have an amen? It's time for me to put away my past, bury the old, and rise up into something new. Hallelujah. For every one of you that's got a bad past, God's got a good future for you. Amen. 
For every one of you got a bad past, God's just got a great testimony awaiting on your behalf. What Satan declares to us as permanent, God decrees as it is only a season. What Satan declares as failure, God only says, oh, that's only lessons learned. God just sent me to buy to tell someone here today, you have wept long enough. God sent me to tell you that you have been intimidated by the mountain long enough. Yes, there may be circumstances of past defeats, but there is a time that we have to take a, cha- take cha- take a charge and say, mountain, enough is enough. You are history. Can I have an amen? Mountain be moved. We know that mountain of rubble wasn't meant to be permanent according to verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands is also will finish it. Thou shalt know that the Lord has sent me unto you. I love that passage of Scripture. According to the Scripture, Zerubbabel didn't just lay the foundation of the temple, but it says, though the foundation be laid 15 years earlier, yet he's going to build upon that, and he'll build and finish that house. That's faith. But look at the rubble. I don't care how much rubble stands between you and your promise. God says he's going to fulfill his promise. Philippians 1 and 6, he which begun a good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. How many believe that? What God started out in your life, just because you had a detour and went a wrong direction, got circumcised, doesn't mean he can't put you back on the same path that you once was on, restore you, reconcile you, and put you back to where God wants you to be to bring about everything God intended for your life. Amen? Sometimes the mountain's not internal, but the intimida- it's the intimidating uh, circumstances that face us. It's the lack of resources. It's the recognition that the task is just bigger than we are. They understood that. Some things are real obstacles that we face in a real world that's not internal, but it's external. Some things, they are not even spiritual, but they're physical. You know, it's not what's wrong in us sometimes. It's a how we allow the things around us to influence us. And sometimes because we're living in defeat does not mean that we're dead spiritually and that we're going to hell. It means that we're allowing the voice of the world to dictate to us of what we have come to believe about the set of, set of circumstances. Some things are not internal, they're external. If we're not careful, we can make a lot of excuses of why we don't do what we're supposed to do because we want to over-spiritualize everything. Oh, it's always a demon that hinder me. It's always a devil that hinder me. In reality, some things are what they are. They are physical, external things that rob us from going forward and pursuing promise. They are nothing but everyday cares and circumstances of life. Amen? It don't always have to be spiritual stuff that robs you. Pay attention to the external things that's going on around in your life. Amen? This is what the people of God faced in the time of Zechariah. They felt overwhelmed. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? They felt unable, incapable. They felt hindered. They felt overcome. They looked around and said, this is an impossible task. Have you ever felt like that? Hello? Am I the only one that feels that way sometimes? When they looked at the situation through the lens of fleshly eyes, folks, it was impossible. It was impossible with the naked eye. But while the people were standing there at the temple site one day, an old man, a prophet, <laughs> by the name of Haggai comes walking in. And when he comes in, he looks at the people and he says, Hey, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in sealed houses while this house right here at this temple lies in waste? Now here, the prophet begins to chide the people a little bit. He asks, when is it going to be a good time to build the temple? 
When are you going to start the process of restoration? When are you going to dare to put your lives back together? Why are you roaming around among this stuff for 15 years and you haven't even cleaned up your, your neighborhood? Why are you allowed this stuff to defeat you? Why have you allowed this stuff to be a burden upon you to where you can't even see? It's broken your spirit. It's broken your willpower. How many of you have ever had a broken spirit and your willpower broken to where you just exist in the church? You just come in and flop on the seats and say, well, it's just another Sunday. I hope I can survive this week. Come on. How many of us come with no spiritual, spiritual zeal at all? No passion, no vision, no, no, no desire, no, no hunger. We just kind of come in and go through the routines because we got a broken spirit. Our will has been busted up by being overcome by the circumstances of life. And sometimes those things are not spiritual. It's the everyday occurrences that happen around us and we allow those everyday cares of life to choke us. And we become unfruitful. Come on, somebody help me preach. The people have the mindset that they, they would start the process when things get better. Have you ever heard people say that? Come on, somebody help me preach. Their attitude was, well, when more resources come in, when they send more help, when Cyrus lets some more of the people come back from, to home from Babylon, when time permits, when things get better, we'll start the process to change. They just sit there procrastinating, waiting for the right time, an easy time, when everything would just fall into place. But through the prophet Haggai, God begins to command them to action right now. Now, I want to show you something. Haggai 1 and 7 says, consider your ways. That's the first thing he says. Consider your ways. Go up into the mountain, bring wood, build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified. Now, the key words there is, go do what I tell you to do, and if you'll obey, I will take pleasure in what you do, and I will be glorified. When God's blessed, you're blessed. Come on, somebody help me preach. When God's happy, his children are happy. Amen? So we see here that the problem was that the people could not see that the key to their own personal victory and triumph was to shift from their self-absorbance and their focus on their own set of problems and, and focus it to do the work of the Lord. What Haggai was saying is, hey, you want to know how to overcome this stuff? Quit looking at it and start doing something about it. Go and start putting yourself and getting wood up there in the mountains and bring it down. Start the work process and you're going to see things change. We have to realize that when Haggai asked the question in Haggai 1.4, is it time for ye, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses while this house lies in waste? All too often it has been preached this way, that they have erected big, lavish houses to live in while the temple laid in waste. Here they were in these nice, comfortable homes and had their car parked in the garage and their, and their, and their motorcycle in the shed. And boy, the life was easy and life was great. That's the way that we've kind of preached those passages over the years. But this is not the case. The word sealed here is just to describe that they had a dry place. It meant that they had a roof over their heads. That's all that it means in the actual Hebrew text. Their sin was not that they were caught up in selfish living by living lavishly in big homes while the temple was neglected. That was not what this was saying. The focus was on like the rich man, like in the day of Lazarus, where he was caught up in worldliness and prosperity and money and parties and fame and pleasure and jobs and careers and luxurious living. That's not what this is talking about at all. 
There is a portion of that going on in America where people live way beyond their means, pursuing the American buck, where enough's never enough, and they'll get all that they can, put up all that they can, and yet the house of God, the work of the Lord is not their priority, and this, and, and, and the, you know, it's not anything that they want to do. This is not this people's sin that we're having in our text. They were not caught up in greedy, selfish lives where they, their time and energy was consumed by obtaining more and more and more while neglecting the things of the temple, the things of the spirit, and the things of the kingdom of God. That was not these people's sin. These people put the work of the kingdom of God on hold, not because of selfishness, but because of self-absorption. What does that mean? This is where they allowed their present circumstances to overwhelm them, break their spirits, and they became self-absorbed. What does that mean? They got so caught up in what they did not have that they could not see what and who they did have. Can I have amen? How many of you have come in this house so absorbed by your set of circumstances that you can't even be free in praising God? You don't even realize who it is that you stand before when you come into a service because you're all broken down by your set of circumstances whether it be sickness, whether it be a bondage of a child, whether it be whatever, a loss of job, low finances, just trial, tribulation, temptation, whatever it may be, a broken marriage, and you come in here and you're so self-absorbed by that that it's robbed you of seeing the possibility of God coming through for you. Amen? While they lived in the moment of a miracle, you know, Cyrus allowed them to return home was a miracle. A miracle had already been put. That was an impossibility, but it happened. Here they were living in the place of a miracle, but yet they could not see that the miracle to return home was for a bigger purpose than for them to just exist and live at home among rubbish. God didn't send them home to tantalize them. God didn't send them home to where they can walk around and cry, look what, that, that used to be my home. Oh, that used to be the temple. <laughs> look at all the ruin, all because of our rebellion. Look what we've done to ourselves. For 15 years they've done that. 15 years, God did not send them home to torment them. God sent them home for a purpose. They were just like the children of Israel when they crossed over the Jordan. You remember they were to go possess the land? For a short time, did you know that the children of Israel lived in the promised land like refugees? They lived in the hills and the mountains, barely surviving and wondering, what's so great about this land? I thought this land was a land that flowed with milk and honey. The, the valleys, the fertile ground was held by giants in the land. They were afraid to go take care of the giants. And with all the miracles that took them to get to where they were at, these people for, could not believe that God still had enough miracles to fulfill their promise and give them that land. God could split Red Seas. God could devour the Egyptian army, which was the strongest military might on the face of the earth at that time. He fed them in the wilderness for 40 years. Their clothes never wore out. He led them by fire by, uh, fire by night and a cloud by day. He caused manna to come in. He caused quail to fall. He done all that. He caused water to come out of a rock. He done all of these miracles, but now for some reason, they're so caught up in their present circumstances that they could not believe that God could rid the land of giants. Let me say this, if God got you where to get, get you, if God's got you to where you're at, he can get you to where you need to be. If God's brought you this far, he can take you the rest of the way. If God has been in your past, he'll be in your present and he'll be in your future. Can I have an amen? If God done it once, he'll do it again. Somehow we lose faith 
when all this stuff comes piling in on us. This is where the people are at in our text. Overwhelmed. Burdened. Look at all the stuff that's going on in America. We think we got it by now. We ain't seen nothing of what's coming on the world scene. We better get a grip of this thing and understand who we're serving here today. God could work a miracle in getting them back home, but for some reason they couldn't believe that God could perform a miracle to restore Jerusalem and to restore the temple back to its former glory. Matter of fact, God's intention is not to restore the temple back to its former glory. That ain't God's intentions. God says, you think the former house is pretty, you wait till you see the latter house. It's going to be better than the former. What God has in your future is better than what you have ever faced in your past, honey. Can I have an amen? You think you're, everybody's wanting to reflect back to the good old days. Well, let me, got, I got news for you. The good old days can't compare to the good that's to come. Everybody wants to go back to the 50s and the 60s and whatever era that they were in when their childhood, when everything was perceived through the mind of, of the adolescence and everything's wonderful and grand and glorious back in the, oh, if we could have church like we had it in the, I don't want church like the 70s. What God's got for the 2020s is much better than our past. The future gets brighter and better as the days go along. Amen. Our best days ain't behind us, they're ahead of us. My best is not in my 20s. My best is in my 70s, and I'm looking forward to them. Amen? This old man's going to declare and decree everything God's got for him, and at 80 years old, I'm still going to be happy. Amen? I'm going to be preaching somewhere, maybe to Jenny in a closet, but I'm going to preach to her. Amen? We sit around as if God has abandoned us for some reason because of circumstance. They got so caught up in their present circumstance in their life that they could not believe God for his sustaining grace. Let me say this. If God, got, if God can save you, he can sustain you. And God can see you through. Amen? We have to understand that the people were in desperate straits. They were barely surviving, folks. They did not have bank accounts. They didn't have nest eggs. They didn't have retirement plans. They didn't have a welfare system. They didn't have a checking account. They didn't have resources that they could pull from like you and I do today. They didn't have a full furnished house and plenty of food even. They looked at their meager resources and thought, surely God isn't expecting anything out of us. Did you hear that? Because this is where I'm going to challenge you. When, God's, when does God expect the most out of us? Is when we don't have anything to offer. That's when he expects a lot. It ain't, it, it's not hard for a man to give $100 if he's got 1000 But is it hard for a man to give a... $3 when he's only got five to his name? Come on, somebody help me preach. These people seem to have valid reasons and valid excuses for not finishing the restoration project that, was, that they had started 15 years earlier. They seem to have valid excuses for them to abandon the work of the temple. Hey, look at us. Surely you're not wanting us to get involved. We don't have anything to offer you, God. Haggai does not let them get by with that mindset, and I'm not going to let you get by with that mindset. You're sitting there and you're saying, Pastor, you have no idea about the in income I have. You have no idea about the resources I have. You have no idea of the circumstances. You don't have any idea of the bills. You don't have any idea of the kids. You don't have any idea of how to raise a child by itself. You got a wife. And, Pastor, you don't understand this. I don't care. You're right. I don't understand. But I do know your resources. God owns the cattle of a thousand hills, and he's your resource. Can I have an amen? God is your resource. God will not abandon his children. 
David said, I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. God's able to take care of his children. Amen. Haggai doesn't let them get by with a mindset. But listen to what he says in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 1. You have so much, you bring in little, you eat, you have not enough, you drink, you're not filled with drink, you're clothed, but none of you are warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into bags with holes in it. Oh, now, listen to what he's saying. The first thing Haggai does is challenge him to consider their ways. He said, consider your ways. He's saying, how's things going for you the way that you're doing things now? Those of you that's been in this thing of where you're devoid of the presence of God, you're overwhelmed, you're defeated, you're tired, you're wore out, you're not sinning, you're not going to hell, but you're just existing and nothing's really changing in your life. You have no vision. You don't have any purpose. You don't have any thought of anything ever getting better. You're just learning to cope and tolerate. I'm just here existing, and when God takes me home, praise God, I'll be ready to go home. That's where a lot of Christians are at today. No zeal, no happiness, no joy, no, no understanding of who we're serving and the magnificence of having the opportunity to even worship God in freedom uh, and, and worship him in freedom and in truth. To come into the house of God and say, if I don't have anything else to do but to worship, it's a great honor and a great privilege to be able to at least give that to God, to worship him. But we can't even do that because we've got feeble hands, feeble knees. We can't even lift up our hands. We can't even clap our hands. We're just, we put our hands in our pockets and we wait till worship is over and we just sit down saying, well, we, I made it through another worship service. Nothing really happened. Nothing fell out of the sky. God's forgotten me. I'm here all alone. Where are you at, God? Don't you see where I'm at? Somehow we get this self-pity about ourselves, and we just sit there week after week procrastinating, just like the children of Israel, waiting for God to just make the time right, do something in the service that will get our attention and make things right. I want to tell you, God don't move until you move because God doesn't do anything unless he honors faith. And it's time for some of you in this building. I'm going to have to get away from my notes. We're going to be here all day. Lord, help me. Oh, Lord, yes, we're going to be here all day. I just seen what page I'm on, and I know how many pages I got. Oh. But somehow we got to get a grip out of this thing and say, hey, i got to consider my ways. How's things going for me the way I'm doing, living now with the decisions I'm making, with the choices I'm making, with the mindset that I have? How's things going on my behalf as a result of what I'm doing? That's what Haggai asked them. He encourages them to look at their condition of their lives and see how the general state is in their life. How's your home? How's your children? How's things at the house? He says, you're not getting ahead. You're not making any progress. Things are not getting any better. He tells them, all your attention is on working and planting and laboring, but you're not gaining any ground. These people have not learned that if, you, that if they wait for the right time, the, a better time, an easier time to build the temple, the temple will never be built. If you just sit around and say, I'm waiting for the right time, well, I want to tell you, you'll sit until doomsday and you'll never build the temple because the enemy's going to make sure that there will always be distractions, that there will always be hurdles, that there will always be opposition. Well, when things get better, I'm going to the house of the Lord. Then you're just opening yourself and nothing's going to get better. The enemy's going to make sure of that. Come on, somebody help me preach. All my life, my whole life, 33, 34 years of pastoring, I've had to build my part of what I'm called to do, my part of the kingdom of God with great opposition, with low resources, during and enduring personal hardships and struggles. I've never had it easy. I'm not here to get you to feel sorry for me. All that worked to my betterment. I've never had anybody come along and say, hey, 
Here's $100,000. I hear these churches all the time where they get million-dollar checks and they get $500,000 checks and this happens and that happens. I'm waiting for that to happen for me somewhere down the line. But I'm not sitting around doing nothing waiting on it to happen. I'm not waiting for a check to come in the mail before I do something for the glory of the Lord. Amen. I'll take what I got, and if I don't have much, I don't care if it's a glass of water. I'm going to bless somebody with a glass of water. And if I bless somebody with a glass of water, I'll in no wise lose my reward according to the Word of God. Amen. I want to just say this, and I'm not saying it to say that we were the only ones that were involved, involved in building the church or the kingdom of God, but I want to tell you something. If me and Jenny would have went to Ninth and Cedar and done nothing, just waiting for God to somehow work a miracle. Folks, we didn't have a parking lot. We didn't have a classroom, a nursery, a chair, a table, a chalkboard. We were thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. We barely had bathrooms. They were all completely uh, destroyed. We had less than 15 people our first service. Me and Jenny's personal finances was about $176 a week working at Gates Rubber Company, and we were giving a big part of that to the church to help pay the bills. I drove an old 54 Ford pickup, and uh, which was my daily driver, and she had a green LTD Ford lime green with 100, 000, over 100,000 miles on it, and it had an orange top. It smoked like a coal train, and the transmission slipped, and wow, we were in style. Everyone envied us, and everybody wanted to be the pastor on Ninth and Cedar. They didn't even know who I was. Can I have an amen? We were considered as nothing. Prophecies over the church saying that it would be destroyed and it would become nothing but a dunghill. Churches around town had prophesied against that church to grow. We were in opposition everywhere we turned. Even the religious community was prophesying against us. No one ever knew our names. And when you said nothing, see that they'd say, nothing, what? Where's that at? And now it's a landmark in town. Come on, somebody help me preach. If Jeannie and I would have just come tonight to Cedar and just sat around saying, well, this is an impossibility. God, okay, we're waiting on you to move. I want to tell you, the church would have never been where it's at today. You know what we've done? You said, well, what did you do? We've done what we knew to do. We said, hey, we only got a handful of people, but this year we're going to have a Christmas program. Three of us had a Christmas program. Four of them watched it. Woo! Can I have an amen? You know what else? We know what to do. We're going we're, we're to have communion. We don't have a lot of resources, but I can go buy some juice and get some crackers, and we can have communion. One old lady that was going there, I forget her name, Sister Macy, 90-some years old, an old Methodist lady. She had been joining the church since I got there, and she said, thank you, Pastor. She said, We've been, I've been coming here for some time. And we never had communion because they said they could never afford it. And said, but you're giving us communion. Thank you for going out of your way and thinking of us and buying that stuff to let us have communion. We had communion. You know what else we had? A good old foot washing. Woo! Same so say, I don't want to be involved in one of those. Hello? All we done is we done what we knew to do. We rolled up our sleeves and said, this is a mountain of rubble. Amen. You know what else I done? Hey, the yard needs mowed. The grass was that tall. I didn't even have a lawnmower. Didn't even have a weed eater. I went out and borrowed one. I started to work. I rolled up my sleeves and I got in there and I started hammering away. Then when I got halfway through the church, I found an old car. Then I found a half of a car. Then I found a fourth of a car. Car parts all over that place. No wonder they didn't mow it. Engines, transmissions. 
I thought, now what am I going to do with this? How am I going to move it? And I found an old junker. He said, well, if you'll give it to me, I'll take it. I said, it's yours. We started cleaning up that place. Hey, well, that old building looks bad. We got to paint it. Well, where are you going to get the money to paint? I don't know. I'll buy it a gallon at a time. I went and started buying paint and started painting the church, being a handful of guys. And all of a sudden, things begin to brighten up. The cloud of darkness that was over us, the people begin to begin to believe again. Woo! Faith begin to be put in action. Come on, somebody help me preach. And a body begin to buy into a vision. And now they're no more a bunch of cripples sitting in a church crying over what used to be in their glory days back in the 1950s. But now it's the 1970s and uh, 1980s and they're saying hope has sprung up again. Light has come out of darkness. God's about to revive his people and look what the Lord has done. These people somehow thought that because they had the low resources that it exempted them from doing anything, anything for the Lord. And then they said, hey, what we're going to do, we're going to trust in the harvest from one year to another. Next year, God will be able to maybe start the temple because we're going to work ourselves. And when we get these resources, we're going to build this temple. And then all they started working and planting and laboring and putting the seed in and plowing the ground and cultivating. And the more they done, the less they got. God said, hey, you think that's the way to handle things by you being in charge? By you putting your own self in the, in the, in the arena of trying to rebuild a, a, a temple to rebuild Jerusalem? It ain't your job, it's my job. Jerusalem's mine, God says. And while you're laboring, putting money in your accounts, trying to live off of it, saving up money to build the temple, he said, I'm blowing upon what you're bringing in. And then he goes on and says, I put a curse on the corn, on the new wine, on the, on the fruit of the labor, on the hands of people, and on the horses and on the cattle. He starts telling all the things he's cursed. Here are people trying to get ahead to do something for God, and God's cursed their work because he says, the problem of it is you're sitting around procrastinating, not involving yourself, not having faith, and stepping out when you have nothing. What's greater, God doing something out of nothing or God trying to use your resources to do it? Come on, somebody help me preach. If I go back to my notes, I got a lot to say right here, but we'd be here a long, 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 long time. And God says, when you brought in the grain, I blew upon it. It's like putting grain in, in bags with holes in it. He said, it didn't profit you anything. Come on. He says, when you went out and did all that labor, it was useless labor, cares of life. He said, you got to understand, you got to put the priority of faith and the priority, priority of the Spirit first. You're cursed because you're not building my temple. Amen? You can get so overwhelmed and you can try to work yourself out of those obstacles to the point that God can be displeased with you because you're not putting anything in to restore your temple, which is the body of the, our bodies is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We work. The Bible always talks about ceaseless labor. Jesus is always saying, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lonely in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. He's always calling people around him to where he can pour into them. And Haggai says, I want to tell you what you do. Go up. Start building the temple. And when you start putting the temple to work, you're going to see something happen in your lives. That your own personal victory is tied to your own personal faith in doing the work of the Lord. 
that with when you have nothing, one of the things God did not want to happen is them people build that temple out of their resources and they could claim that they done it themselves and get the glory for it. God wanted the glory for building the temple. No flesh is going to glory in his presence. And God can sometimes position you and put you in a place to where if it wasn't for God, you wasn't going to make it. And therefore, God did not let you make it on your own so that you could gloat about your own strength. He allowed you to make it through nothing so that he could be glorified in what he'd done for you. Amen? And some of you are positioned just right for a miracle. <laughs> but we sit around and we procrastinate, and this is what we do. Here's our excuses in modern-day terms. Well, when we get out of the baby stage, you know, it's just so hard to get a baby ready and the baby don't sleep at night and keeps us up and we just can't hardly come to the house of God. We can't get involved in the church and, and, and you know, we can't give really because of diapers and that formula. All that's so high. And, you know, when we get out of the baby stage and when they become a kid, you know, we'll start coming and we'll be more faithful. It's always a, an excuse for the future. And then when the kid comes, oh, we can't come. He's a rowdy two-year. You know, it's the terrible twos. And he's three and four years old. We can't keep up with him. He's all over the church. He embarrasses us. He's hard to handle. And when that kid gets out of the kid's stage, when he gets up around eight or nine years old, then we'll come to the house of God. Then when he gets eight or nine years old, well, when the basketball games are over and when the baseball games are over and when the cheerleading squad is over and when the school activities are over, when he grows up a little bit, then we can be faithful and then we can get involved and then we can do the work of the Lord and then we can give of our resources. And then when that's over, oh, when I get out of this teenage stage, it's turning me gray. Come on. And then when the teenage is going, well, when I get an emptiness, when I get the college paid for, when I get their college paid for, and it's always an excuse going forward and forward and forward. When I get a better job, when I get a pay raise, I'll be able to afford to pay tithes. And every time we do those things, you know what's happening? God's blowing on everything that we're doing. It's not blessed. It's not sanctioned. It's not sanctified. Come on. God says, put me first, put me to the test. Put the labor of the Lord first in your endeavors and watch me bless you. Then all of a sudden, Haggai says, get off your duffs, roll up your sleeves, quit worrying about what you don't have, start offering what you do have, you got time. Some of you are sawmillers, go cut some wood. There's wood out there. Why are you sitting around in your houses feeling sorry for yourself, waiting on the harvest, sitting there day after day when there's nothing to do? You're not even cleaning up the rubble. You're overwhelmed. You are literally sitting here doing nothing, spinning your wheels, putting confidence in a harvest that I've cursed. Go up into the hills and cut timber. Bring it back. We've got some carpenters amongst us. When they get it here, you start doing some framework. Come on. Ladies, you start making some apple pies. Hello? And some T-bone steak. Boy, I'm preaching now. Some of you go down to that little bitty store that was erected and buy some ding-dongs for that prophet. He's going to need it. And a big glass of chocolate milk because they're going to work hard. And when they start the work process out of nothing, Overwhelmed, they don't even have anything at home. They're bringing in grain and it ain't even sustaining them. They can't even hardly have full meals. They're barely existing, and yet them are the people God's expecting to do something. He ain't reaching out to the poor. It's never been the millionaires that's built the church. 
You know who's built the church? The little woman with the might who gave all that she had. And Jesus said, you've all given a portion. You've all gave some. But who gave the most? Which gift was the greatest sacrifice? Which one is going to be rewarded the most? I tell you, this woman is because she's given her all. And this will go out throughout the Gospels where she'll never, never not be known because it's going to be a memorial unto her. Amen? I'm here to tell you, if somebody come in a billionaire and put a million dollars in the offering plate, I'm going to shout. But I shout more for the person that's got the $10 and gives five because they gave a greater percent. God's going to bless that at a greater measure and do more with it than what the million dollars will ever accomplish. Do we not understand that those that, the, those that labor, labor in vain unless the Lord builds the house? Unless the Lord's honoring and sanctifying and blessing and showing his favor, we're nothing but doing ceaseless labor, trying to earn a living. And God said, put me first. Now let me show you. Haggai then says, the next verse, and I think chapter 2 Around 16, 17, he begins to say, I think it's that. I'll have to look it up. He says to this, now because that you've obeyed the Lord and you've went out and cut the wood and you're starting the work process, he says, look and see if there's grain in the barn. Yes, he answers. And then he says, and look and see if the cattle's not flourishing. Yes, they are. Look and see if the oil vats are not filling up. Yes, they are. Supernatural things begin to happen on the, on, 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 in the place of nothing happening due to the fact that the people begin to put God first and God then turned around and began to bless their vats, took the curse off their land. He blessed the works of their hands and abundance began to come pouring in. Would you stand with me this morning? Oh, I don't want us to come to believe that since our personal resources are meager, that we're exempt from the duties of doing the service and the work of the Lord. You say, Pastor, I don't have to, anything to offer. Yes, you do. You got yourself to offer. God's just looking for some willing servants here today, and he wants to turn your world around. He don't want you to be overwhelmed. He don't want you to be beat up. He don't want you to keep sitting around saying when the time is right, when the time. You know how many people are taking what little money they have and going playing the lottery, hoping and praying and praying to even God, God, let this be the winning ticket. Let me ask you a question. Which prayer does God answer? Because almost everybody's praying that. God, let me win the sweepstakes. And every day they check that mailbox. Well, it's because I haven't ordered anything. If I order something, maybe I'll have a better chance. So they'll take their money and they'll put it in a gambling cycle, not even knowing what they're doing, and they'll buy something that they don't even need in order to get their name maybe a little bit more on the list in order to win the sweepstakes. It happens every day. People going through promising God. Now, God, if, if you'll just let a million dollars find my, I promise you I'll do this, this, and this with it. And God's sitting in the heavens saying, if you, if you won't give when you got little, you sure won't give when you got big. I have found out that the people that won't dedicate themselves when they have nothing will be the same people that won't dedicate themselves when they have everything. 
Not having nothing is a good place to be in because it's a place that God can prove himself to you. It's a place where you can receive a miracle. It's a place that God can come down and reveal to you your way of living caused a lot of rubbish. Your way of living has caused a lot of pain, a lot of neglect, a lot of debris, a lot of wasteful resources. And I got a better plan, saith the Lord. Give me your life. Start getting involved in the work of the Lord somewhere, somehow. Be faithful to the house of God. Be faithful in your giving. Be faithful in your tithing. And see if I won't bless you. Amen. God wants to bless some people here today. I don't know who you are, but my heart broke this week when I was sitting in my office and I was praying over the sermon. And I said, God, I don't know who you're speaking to, but evidently there are some people that are broken. There are some people with some broken past. They got a lot of rubbish that they're putting up with. They got a lot of things that are being thrown in their face by the enemy. They got a lot of truths that is being thrown at them. They are there because of the circumstances of their behavior, because of the decisions that they have made. Lord, and they're so overwhelmed, and they look at it and say, how can we clean this up? There's too much rubbish. There's too many broken pieces that put it back together. There's not enough resources. There's not enough help for me to be able to do what needs to be done. I'm ruined. I'm a has-been. I'll just learn how to cope. I'll live among the ruins, and every day when I get up to go out to the vineyard that's not supplying my need, I'll look at the rubbish, and the rubbish will mock me and laugh at me and remind me of what was and tell me it can never be again. The devil is a liar. There are people in this building that God wants to say, I don't want to take you back to your past and recreate it, but I want to create a new work in you that's better than what your past has ever been in your life. I want to give you a new thing. I want you to bury your past. I want to clear the rubble up. I want to stop the mocking, the laughing, the accusations that's against you. I want to give you a new feature, a new beginning, and a hopeful end. If you're here this morning and you're just in that place of imprisonment and slave to emotion, and you just feel like you're drained, you have no life, you're just existing, there's no purpose, there's no... I want you to come up here and really commit your life to Christ. Not that you're not saved. This ain't got nothing to do about salvation. It's about you trying to make a new start, a new beginning. It's about you recognizing what I'm doing right now is not perfected yet. And I'm reaping some consequences over it. And I need a better life than this. Hallelujah. Is there others? Folks, there's more than two here in this congregation today. Obey the Spirit of the Lord. But God would allow this service to happen just for these two, if that's the case. God loves you here this morning. We love you here this morning. Some of you got a, a divorce that's took place that's just crushed you. You don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Some of you have just having some bad circumstances that's happening to your life. It's time to recreate a desire for the things of the Lord and say, God, today, forgive me of setting among the ruins of my life 
and thinking that this is all that there is because God, I've left you out of the equation. I've not been a person of faith. I ask you, Lord, today that you would forgive me of my unbelief, that you would forgive me of not a full committal to you. I pray today, God, that I'd have a life change to where I would begin to roll up my sleeve and though it may take time before I see the results, I'm going to commit myself to the work of the Lord. I'm going to be a giver and not a taker. I'm going to be a recipient and not a spectator. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to be a part. I'm going to come alongside, do my, my, my part. And God, I know that you'll do your part. You'll see me through. You'll help me to be an overcomer in Christ Jesus. You'll help me, God, walk the path of righteousness for your name's sake. You'll be the one that will get the glory out of my life and out of my testimony because I cannot do it upon myself. I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough. I've not got the resources to do it. I'm not powerful enough. It'll be you that will deliver me and you only as I commit my life to you here this morning in the name of Jesus. Can I have some altar workers, please? The Lord's really doing some sensitive work upon these people that have came.